in this episode of This Calling. I think it's really, I think lay leadership is really important. The longer I'm involved at St. Luke's, the more I can see that. Like we, you know, can continue as a church, even if we have big changes, that there's like a role for everyone as part of that process. It's it's not really just about making the minister like the star of the show, <laughs> if that makes sense. Hello and welcome to This Calling, Conversations About Vocation. I'm Chris Arnold, a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. These are the calling stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Abigail Shoup, Assistant Professor of Music Theory at Colorado State University. Abby is a member of St. Luke's in Fort Collins, and we talk about music and God, spirituality and showing up, her journey into the Episcopal Church, and her work on the vestry. And of course, since we recorded this in March 2020, we talked about the coronavirus. We'll get through this together. Now, here's my conversation with Abby. I hope you enjoy it. Well, hello, Abby. Welcome to This Calling. How are you in this time of coronavirus quarantine? (laughs) Are you self-isolating and hunkering down at home? Yes, I am. Um, We, our university is um, not closed, but fully online. So Mm -hmm. I'm working from home and trying to make sure that I get outside every day, trying to do different things to preserve my mental health. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you said university. So tell us what you do for work. What is your vocation? So I um, am an assistant professor of music theory at Colorado State University here in Fort Collins. Okay, that's the Rams or something, right? That's right. Yes. I'm right. Okay. Yeah. Rams. <laughs> okay. Uh huh. So what? It, what? What's music theory? Well, when I compare it to a lot of different things, um, I don't want to say that music is a language, but teaching music theory is a bit like teaching a freshman level language class Hmm. in that there are written components and there's listening and there's singing instead of speaking in the foreign language. And um, it's, it can be um, a word I've heard to describe it as very procedural. Like you, it's, it's sometimes people um, who have math anxiety get anxious about music theory too. Um, because they, they feel like there's sort of like the same kind of logical reasoning, but I certainly don't fall into that category because I've always struggled with math and felt very comfortable in my music theory classes by comparison. (laughs) So, um, but it has that same kind of like, there's steps to doing things, show your work, (laughs) those kinds of things are involved in teaching it. Um, in terms of music theory as a field, it's really more focused on research and analysis of musical uh, pieces or musical phenomena. And it's changed a lot in the last like 30 years or so um, to be maybe a little bit less like a STEM field and more sort of a broad humanities field. Um, so there's lots of different kinds of research being done in the field of music theory. It's hard to characterize it as kind of one thing anymore. How long have you been doing this line this is, of work? So this is my fourth year at CSU. And before that, I taught for two years at the College of Worcester in Ohio. 
Mm-hmm. And before that, I was in graduate school for seven years. Um, so it depends now, on you, when you think the start date is. <laughs> so you and I got connected because of Kira, who was on <laughs> episode four. I should have all the episodes memorized, shouldn't I? It doesn't matter. <laughs> An earlier episode. So did you meet her in, in a music program way back so then? Kira and I met in high school because we okay. both went to the Interlochen Arts Academy in northern mm-hmm. Michigan, near Traverse City, Michigan. And it's a, it's a the Interlochen Center for the Arts is a camp in the summer and a high school, boarding high school in the winter. Hmm. And we both went there for our junior and senior years of high school and became really good friends and then the second year that we were there we were roommates so and we've stayed close ever since that's great yeah <laughs> so um how does one get to be a professor of music theory What's oh, your... there's no straight line that's for sure um <laughs> because Well, so for me, I was always involved in music as a kid. I always knew that that was something that I was like very invested in. And I think I was also told that it was sort of like you have been given this ability, like you have to do it, which I have a lot of mixed Hmm. feelings about now. Um, But I went to Interlock. Who who was telling you that? Oh, everybody tells you that if you're a kid and you show some kind of like musical aptitude. Um, And I've been involved in church forever as well, like my, as a, uh, as a kid, I was raised Methodist, and I um, would sing in the church choir my whole life. We had we went to a church that had a vibrant youth program, and so I was in like a children's choir. And then you know you sort of move up the ranks. Like first, I was in like the cherub choir, I want to say, or something the like that. Oh. Yeah, and then you became <laughs> dulcet, and then you became <laughs> like oh. there were all these levels. Anyway, and then. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I would sing solos or I would play, um, instrumental solos sometimes for the offertory and, and, um, and I was involved in music performance at school and everything, um, and any opportunity pretty much. And, um, my sense was that people would just tell you like, oh, wow, this is amazing. You have to, you have to pursue this. You have to study this. And, Hmm. um, I believed that for a really long time until it started to make me uncomfortable and, um, the message at Interlochen was very much the same. Like you have to um, go to a, a prestigious um, conservatory style music program in order to be successful or legitimate. And um, so, yeah, I just, I felt excited by it. And then after a while I started to feel maybe more of the pressure that those statements were, I was interpreting those statements as putting pressure on me. why did that what was going on with that change were were you <laughs> hearing it enough that you were getting sick of it did it start to feel no. like work or a burden um i think i started to feel like i didn't necessarily want to perform so kira and i part of the reason that we knew each other well and became such good friends is we were both there to study voice and i became interested in studying composition while i was there and um i felt like there was a lot of like pushback from my instructors and my parents (laughs) at the time. They've always been very supportive. So this didn't exactly like derail my plans, but at the time people were like, well, you have to study singing 
And I said, well, what if I don't want to? And like, I started to learn more about what the, what the sort of, um, I say, I want to say field, but that's not even really the right word. Like what the culture would be like to be a performer. And I just don't love performing, um, Mm enough to do that and um you know i would hear sometimes you hear people say like you know if there's anything else you can do in the world besides perform um like you should go do that because this is so hard this this career will like take everything out of you and so you have you you should only do it if you like have to do it and i never really felt that way um, I liked receiving praise <laughs> and, and I love music. I loved studying it and I loved like doing the things, but I didn't love being in front of people. And it became clear to me that I wasn't going to be willing to make the sacrifices to have that life that I felt I would be, have, I, I would mm-hmm. be asked. To make. You know, they, they tell people, uh, who sense a call to ordained life, the same thing, you know, um, <laughs> That if you can do literally anything else with your life other than get ordained, you should do that. And there's a lot of stuff that you can do in the church that doesn't require ordination. So (laughs) that's um, what I'm finding out, actually. uh, Yeah. So why are you finding that out? Well, so I'm a vestry member at my church. Okay. um, So I attend St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Fort Collins, and we've gone through major changes in the last well I mean I've only been here four years so I guess the changes have been going on seemingly the whole time I've been here where we had a we had an associate who left and then we had a financial crisis that lasted about a year and well really more I guess but it it came to feel like everybody who was there just had to like roll up their sleeves and get ready to like do the yard work and clean the bathrooms and like do all the <laughs> stuff that I think a lot of people were not really that interested in doing and for various reasons, people left, um, not just because of those things. Um, yeah. so it just, and, and all of that started happening right before I got on the vestry and this, uh, this year, 2020 is my third of three years as a vestry member. So I won't be after this year, but, um, it just felt like we were at a time where everybody needed to step up and do things. And yeah, really clear to us because we had supply preachers and then we had an interim and then we were back to supply um it became really clear to us how many things we could do without a full-time ordained clergy person working at the church um you know i taught adult formation for a while and um part of the reason i actually started doing that before all that happened because we had two services and when our associate left the rector said like, I don't think I can do Sunday school. I don't think I can teach adult Sunday school because I don't want to have to do something between the two services. I mean, in addition to all the other things that he was doing. And I said, well, there's no really, there's no reason he has to be the person who does it. Anyone could do that. And so I sort of taught it and also organized it for a while, like just planning what we were going to do and who could teach different topics and things like that so has it been been an exciting uh discovery or is it not been (laughs) it's been an exciting discovery in some ways and i think that going i think it was good for us as a congregation to go through some of those things because you could really see like who's who's really committed to being here and doing the work 
um, and and who can do different things. Like not everybody can physically do the same jobs mm-hmm. and not everybody has the same interests and that's fine. You know, for me, one of the things I've struggled with with church for a long time is that I don't really want to be in the choir and I have three degrees in music. I've studied singing for a long time <laughs> um, and people have always guilt tripped me wherever I've been for not wanting to be in the choir. And um, part of the reason is that I do music every day anyway. I don't feel like personally, like I need that. And it's not, I don't think the best use of my like time and abilities for the church, honestly, it was like, we need somebody to like teach Sunday school and we need somebody to like head up different projects. We don't need one more person to sing in the choir, or at least it doesn't need to be me. I can do a lot of other things. But those were tough times. We had to pare down the staff in a big way. We lost um, a communications director. We lost our children and youth minister. Um, Our associate had already left. Like we basically just slashed the budget and maybe even too much, but it's, you know, it's really like turned around in this wonderful way that um, to where now it's a place that I, I really want to be. I'm sad that, uh, the virus means that you know we can't go there at all because i felt like (laughs) we have a new rector and i felt like we were really gaining momentum (laughs) so i hope that we maintain that some online and then come back and very new right how long has she been there now she started december 1st which was the first sunday in advent (laughs) so it was really like throwing her in um and what was maybe a i don't know a tough start date maybe it's not it was great (laughs) Um, yeah my first Sunday at my church was uh, I preached and presided Advent four uh-huh. and then Christmas Eve oh, okay. <laughs> as a supply priest. I got paid as a supply priest. And then January 1st, I began as the rector, but I made it clear to the vestry, like, you know, Advent four Sunday afternoon, if someone winds up in the hospital, call someone else. Cause I'm not here yet. I'm just, uh, I'm just here to preach and take the opportunity to, um, to have the parish kind of meet me and, mm-hmm. you know, to catch that Christmas Eve wave. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I need a little bit of a, a break before I started. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, so back to um, high school. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you're you're uh, beginning to wrestle with this, uh, you know, the pressure that other people were putting on you. Yeah. Yeah. But you went through with it. I mean, I did. And I mean, I, I still, um, so when I went to college though, I majored in composition. Mm-hmm. Um, I purposefully went to a program. So I went to Indiana university for my bachelor's and my master's degrees. Um, oh. and part of the reason that I wanted to go to that program was that they really put an emphasis on performing, even if you weren't, a performance major. So even though I didn't want to do it forever, I knew that I still wanted to be in a place where I could kind of do both things a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot of opportunities there. Like I was able to study voice with a professor instead of a grad student, like that kind of thing was more of a priority um, for their program than it is at some places. And it's, so, yeah, it seems like it would make sense if you're focusing on composition to at least have the experience of performance as well, so that. Yeah. And most programs will require you to study something because you need to be able to, to play well, whatever it is that you're going to play. 
Um, and, you know, so for me, that was voice. And, um, and I'm glad I did that because I performed a lot in undergrad. Um, and I found that I really, really valued the opportunity to sing contemporary music that my classmates were even composing. So I would, you know, I never was running out of opportunities for <laughs> um, performance because if you make friends with a composition student, they'll always need somebody. So <laughs> <laughs> if you're willing and <laughs> able to to perform their music, they're usually pretty happy about it. So <laughs> So um, you said you grew up Methodist. See, I'm yeah. trying to weave together both, fine, both yeah. you know, the, the religious mm-hmm. uh, experience of your life and also the, the, the career development because they sure. blend together, of course. But sure. yeah. um, that's why I'm popping back and forth between one and the other. So you grew up Methodist. I did. And uh, um, what was that? What was that like for you? Did you like well, it? Or? Yeah, I had a really good experience. Oh, good. And, um, with the church when I was growing up, I wouldn't describe my family as a really religious, um, like my mom comes from a long line of Methodists. And so, um, I think it was really important to her that we be part of the church. Um, my dad was actually, he was a professor of, um, sociology and his expertise was the sociology of religion. And he himself was not religious at all and had a lot of, um, kind of understandable criticisms of organized religion. Um, yeah. Understandable he, he, for you yeah. or for him? Um, I think for a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> like corruption that's possible in the church. He studied them. Um, he studied yeah. like um, the like financial structure of the Mormon church, for example. Yeah. Uh, he studied pastoral abuse as like a phenomenon sociologically. Um, and oh. like the Catholic church, um, sexual abuse cases that were, um, I mean, obviously have been ongoing for a long time, but he was writing about that kind of in the late nineties, I guess, when there were a lot of cases coming to the public about those, about those things. Um, a lot of information coming out about that. Um, and he had been raised, I guess, Baptist, but he had no fondness for it at all. Yeah. <laughs> so Um, But he went to church with us and I'd say like, it was not a contentious thing in our house. It just wasn't like, I mean, I would go to other people's houses and I felt like they were more religious than my family. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But I had a good experience and I think really fondly on my confirmation experience in the Methodist church um, because they spent a year doing a ton of different formation programs with us. And uh, I feel like I learned a lot from doing that. Hmm. That really served me. Um, like they took us on a mission trip. They took us to a black church in town and one in Chicago. I'm from Northeast Indiana. So we uh, were kind of within range of these other communities. Um, we went to a synagogue and got to just sort of like have a ask me anything session with the uh, rabbi there, which was really great, <laughs> which Maybe there were a few of us who were particularly enthusiastic about all of that stuff. So maybe that's just sort of um, foreshadowing for my, my rector now says that I'm a church nerd. And um, so I, looking back, I feel like that's, it was obviously going to be that way. <laughs> um, so yeah, anyway, I feel like I had a really good experience with it growing up for the most part. Yeah. Religion is fascinating just as a human yeah. phenomenon, but then. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, I obviously believe that the Christian part of it is 
is true. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, yeah. Uh, so did you keep on staying connected with church when you went off to university? A lot of people drift away during, during those years. Yeah. Well, so during the two years that I was at Interlochen, um, I actually went with three other kids and Kira was one of them. And one of our hall counselors, two of our hall counselors took us to this Presbyterian church in a nearby town. This Interlochen is really isolated, um, like in the middle of the woods in Northern Michigan. And there was a bus you could take into Traverse city to go to church on Sunday morning. So I could have gone to a Methodist church if I'd really wanted to, but um, these people, it was just sort of like a word of mouth thing. I just, had heard that these two kids went to this church and they loved it. And they, you know, suggested that I go with them. I was friends with them. Um, so Kira and these other two and I went there pretty consistently for those two years that we were at Interlochen. And um, that was a really positive experience. I didn't really seek out the Presbyterian church after that. Um, but it, it was a, a good thing for me for those two years. And then when I went to Indiana, I more or less took what I call my hiatus. Um, I didn't really go to church very much. Not never, but not very much <laughs> um, mm-hmm. during the that I was living in, in Bloomington. Um, I went to the First United Methodist Church in the downtown area of Bloomington, like, I don't know, a few times a year, probably, like for Easter yeah. and, and a handful of other times when I would feel like it. But I, I just didn't during those years not because I felt scorned or because I was like <laughs> and, um, had some negative feeling toward it I just didn't I don't know so did you have any sort of uh, what you would call a spiritual practice during that time not especially no um, no not really um and I would feel good when I went to church and then I just wouldn't always make the time. Basically I didn't commit to doing it. Yeah. And so I so a good number of people say that music, playing music, listening to music, that they find music to be a very kind of spiritual vehicle uh, mm-hmm. realm. I don't know. <laughs> uh, is that true for you? Um, probably not anymore. I know that's going to be a real bummer for some people to hear, but, um, <laughs> just, <laughs> um, have, was in school for so long. <laughs> we have a joke in our house that I don't even really like music. Um, that's not really true. I just am very particular about some pieces have like a very personal meaning to me. And, um, there are certain things that I really prefer listening to or like, but, um, um as I like continued with my studies in graduate school I feel like I learned so much more about um like kind of music as a cultural practice which is not a bad thing but I learned the sort of um difficult and complex history of western classical music in and the parts that I felt like I had so I always compare music conservatory schools to like a cult because you have to like be indoctrinated into a certain way of thinking. And um, my dad also studied cults. So I never used that metaphor with, or that analogy with him. I don't know what he would have thought, but um, (laughs) I just, uh, you have to, you have to like buy in 
And at some point I learned enough about the damage that that tradition can do and has done. And it's like colonialist practices and it's, you know, ways of oppressing people, participating in the oppression of people that I just don't really experience it quite in that way anymore. Um, I'm just, I, I'm not a dyed in the wool person who believes in the cult anymore. <laughs> I, I certainly was. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and it's dangerous because it sounds like I'm being an amateur psychologist or no, something, no, no, no. and, and okay. I, I don't want to offend anybody, but it sounds like, so your dad <laughs> uh, studies the sociology of religion and it sounds like he himself had kind of moved beyond any personal mm-hmm. uh, well, attachment to religion. I will say that he was a practicing Zen Buddhist for the last few years of his life. Um, mm. So anyway, but, but and, yes, right. Like and you studied music almost yeah. to the point where you, so my question is, yeah. is it, is it possible? Is there a danger in studying something too much? I don't know if that's true. I think, more <laughs> that, um, I don't, I don't think it's dangerous. I'm glad I have this awareness. First of all, I try to impart these things to my students that I don't want there to be a lot of hero worship or deification of a particular composer, for example, because like anything, you end up with these myths of the sort of like these grand narratives, like the great man and like students will tell you things that are just like completely historically inaccurate. Like, well, Bach wrote for passion and Beethoven, you know, composed because of passion. And I I have to look at them in the face and say like, yeah, maybe, but those people wrote for money. Those people had jobs. Those people were trying to put food on the table for themselves and Mm -hmm. their families. Like not Beethoven's kids, I don't think, but, but still like, you know, there are practical considerations that we just completely ignore the way that we teach a lot of um, music at the second at the level of higher ed and um, Mm -hmm. you know, it can be hard to have those conversations because students are, are taught at some point that those things are, are true and they have really personal relationships with music themselves. I'm not trying to like ruin that, but um, I mean, maybe I'm trying to ruin it a little bit. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, you're trying to bring a critical. Yeah. uh, Like, we have evidence that those people were not necessarily good people. Like, I think that there are these conflations with the sort of possible kind of like divinity of their music or the sort of um, these spiritual feeling things that we can experience when we listen to their music. And those can be very real, but we don't have to pretend like Bach was a saint or Beethoven was like a saint. Mm-hmm. Those things are true. And there's a lot of that kind of talk in music school. So I mean, to to go back to your sort of question there, I mean, is there a danger in studying it? I I would rather have a more honest appraisal of what those those people and events were actually like than to, um, I don't know, be under some kind of, like, to be upholding these sort of, like, great band myths of those composers, these, like, Western composers. So where do you find transcendence and wonder and awe today? <laughs> um, I mean, it depends on the sort of scale you mean, I guess. Moving to Colorado certainly isn't, isn't bad for those things. <laughs> um, because I, I have always felt that way about the natural world, I think. 
and, um, you know, enjoy spending time in it. And I do sometimes feel that way about certain musical pieces. Um, and I have those feelings in church sometimes too. I, I, I'll confess. I don't feel that way every single Sunday, but I feel like, yeah, neither do I. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I do feel those feelings or have those experiences sometimes in the context of like actual, um, like religious practice. And sometimes when I'm, you know, out hiking somewhere. So there's a lot of, I mean, I actually think the landscape in the Midwest is really beautiful. I'm not trying to say that like, Oh, now that I live in Colorado, I can (laughs) really get a sense of the, the beauty of creation (laughs) because I loved being in, you know, in the woods and on trails and stuff in Ohio when I lived there. But, um, well, I had this, it struck me this last summer, my wife and I did a cruise, maybe the last time that anyone's able to take a cruise. It sounds like the cruise industry is toast. Um, we took a cruise up to Alaska and we sailed out of Seattle, which is where we lived, where we were living when we met 14 years ago and we hadn't been back since. So we went up to up the inside passage in Alaska and then spent a couple of days um, out on the Olympic Peninsula, um, which is a lot of wilderness. And I realized that there's a difference between rural because where I live now, like it's, it's a, it's a town, 65,000 people. But if you drive a few miles out of town in any direction, it's farms and fields. Right. So it's rural, but that's different from wilderness. And I think, um, what struck me as I was looking out over the Olympic um, Hurricane Ridge in the Olympic National Park was that um, when you're in wilderness, you don't see a whole lot of human achievement. And, right. You know, and so um, humans feel very small. And, right. you know, God feels or whatever divine force it is that, that creates creation uh, in your mythology Uh, Mm -hmm. for me you know it's it's evidence of god's work and not very much evidence of humanity's work humans are very small um but then even like in the rural landscape around here it's all very intensely managed by humans right of course so it's not an urban environment but it's still fields that are under Mm -hmm. agriculture or pasture or um, managed woodlots or something like that. So yeah, there is something different about wilderness. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you ever get to go out to like the great lakes very much? I mean, (laughs) um, yeah, there's, I mean, and there's some parts right along the great lakes that have that same wildernessy feel. Um, where Oshkosh is, we're right on the Western bank, the Western shore of Lake Winnebago, which is a very, I mean, it's it's not a great lake, but it's like Lake Tahoe size. Okay. It's um, yeah, yeah. It's like forty-five miles from north to south and ten miles across in the widest point. It's big. So yeah, I, I can tell you, like one time when I do feel like music is really important to me right now. Uh, well, not right right now, but recently, is um, that since I've moved to Colorado, I've been really active in open water swimming because I always swam as a kid until I went to Interlochen. I was swimming all the time. Um, and so I've become, uh, 
you know, interested in doing some of these, they'll have like races on these lakes that are mostly man-made up here, mm-hmm. uh, like reservoirs and stuff. Um, and just to sort of, I guess, um, like manage that experience a little bit for myself so that I don't, so that I pace myself appropriately and like stay calm. Um, <laughs> um, I have like a certain playlist of things that I think through in my head. I don't actually have like waterproof earphones, but I think of it as like listening, just, you know, listening in my mind to certain pieces of music and they're very like carefully selected because of how they make me feel and the kind of calm and, and just like um, the kind of like kinesthetic experience of listening to those pieces to me goes with the experience of being in the water. Like it just really, they work together well. Hmm. So. Have you ever shared that playlist anywhere? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's no, it's not like a, it's not a little <laughs> secret or anything. Um, I really love um, like WC. There's like a few different WC pieces that I'll try to think through mm-hmm. um, just because it feels calm to me um, without necessarily feeling like it's going to put me to sleep. Um, <laughs> or uh, really the, the thing that I can really stretch out in my mind and insert some repeats for myself if I need to is um, the fifth movement from uh, Messian's Quartet for the End of Time. I don't know if you know that piece at all. I don't. Um, it's a wonderful piece written during World War II when he was a POW in this uh, POW camp. And hmm. um, and uh, it was written for the four instruments that they had. There were like people who played those instruments who happened to be there as well. And they had access to like a piano and a cello, a clarinet, and a, and a violin. Um I was like, I'm gonna, that's bad if I can't think of the fourth one. Um, but the fifth movement is just the piano and the cello, and it's very it has a very regular pulse. Huh. Um, Messian, do you know? Are you familiar with Messian at all? He's yeah, a, a little bit, yeah. Not as well as you are, I'm sure. <laughs> well, he had he was a very um, devout Catholic, and also it was interested in different kind of mystic theology, and um, huh. he had these. He would transcribe bird song because he had these beliefs about the sort of special qualities of birds and birds being these like divine creatures. And um, so the cello line, I'm pretty sure is a, a much augmented slowed down uh, transcription of a bird song. Cool. And then the um, pulse it almost, it's so slow, this like really slow kind of um, piano uh, pulse, pulsing chords is so slow that you you lose track of time in this way that he really liked. Like he liked that it created this sense of stasis because it made it to him that was like a sort of musical um, expression of what eternity might be like. That hmm. it would just feel like you're still moving, but you're not really going anywhere. And it's just, you can almost feel like there's a sense of progression in the, t- in the time of that piece, but that it ultimately, um, you know, doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> so do you think music teaches us something about God? I think it can. Yeah, I think it can. Music is a really big term. So I think well, we're, true. Really accustomed, yeah. we're really accustomed to think when I say music and I tell people I went to music school, they know pretty much, I mean, Western classical music. And yeah. there's lots of kinds of music besides that. So I don't want to sure. speak into, you know, 
Western centric terms there. I'm married to an ethnomusicologist, so I feel like that's informed my <laughs> uh, way of thinking about some of those things. Well, okay. So is there something, <laughs> is there something kind of what seems to be an innate part of, uh, of our human beings that we are responsive to music. Yes, I think, and I've heard argument before that every, that people are fundamentally musical and music yeah. is a fundamental part of being human. And, you know, because we'll have people tell us, particularly old people at church for some reason, like to say like, Oh, I'm not musical at all. I could never do what you do. And first of all, I want to say, like, I went to school for, like, 13 years. So if you studied it for 13 years, <laughs> you some music, too. But also, like, everyone is musical. We just have these notions of what is valuable. And that's a different question, you know. Like, yeah. what in music is valuable? Those are not the same things. So is it part? is it part of what it means for us to be made in the image of God that we're... Oh, that's... I don't know if that's a question I can answer. I feel like... <laughs> Someone yeah. with some theological expertise could answer that better than I can. Well. So what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted your opinion. Oh. <laughs> um, I mean, I, th I think there must be, so I, I, I think that, 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 you know, music is kind of fits into the whole category of, of aesthetics, like our ability to find things beautiful and whatever the opposite of beauty is. Um, and that that somehow has something to do with being able to perceive the world in the way that God does. Oh, and I don't okay. know exactly how. I mean, it's a big topic, uh, and I'm not an expert on it. I haven't thought <laughs> it through enough. St. Augustine did a lot of thinking about it. But, um, but I think, you know, there's a sense in which the orderliness or chaos of the universe is is not just utilitarian or not just functional mm -hmm. but is uh but creation is is beautiful mm -hmm. in a sort of objective sense not just you know mm -hmm. something that we experience as beauty or lack thereof but the fact that we have the ability to perceive beauty um or the lack of beauty um like the fact that we have this in us, mm -hmm. um, I wonder if it if it's kind of a, a a gift from God to help us to to do whatever humans are supposed to do. That's interesting uh, in a certain way. I hadn't but, thought of you know. that before. I like that idea certainly. Um, I mean, I guess there's something. The thing that comes to mind when you're saying that is also like like love does it help you appreciate your own love for something or the love that mm. someone else might have for you and um you know those two things might go together really well i don't know i, mean, I don't study aesthetic theory so i don't want to like you know make thing make a statement that is like probably obviously wrong to someone yeah. who does yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're yeah we're both heading off into <laughs> into okay. dangerous territory. Um, I think that music can enhance a worship service. I can say that for sure. And I think aesthetic beauty can enhance worship service for me too. Well, we'll bring it back to worship then. So <laughs> how, how did, so Bloomington during your years in Bloomington, you didn't go to church very often. And no. when you did go to church, it was a Methodist church. 
Yeah, pretty much. Now I, I went to Episcopal Church in Bloomington once in undergrad, and okay. then I discovered that they had a free lunch afterward, and I oh. and I thought about going back partially because of that. I was like, you know, they have that free lunch, but I didn't ever actually do it. <laughs> and now you serve on the vestry at an Episcopal yeah. church. So yeah. there's some steps in, in intervening there. <laughs> so what are those steps? So after I did my master's degree at Indiana, I wanted to get a PhD and I had my husband, my now husband, then boyfriend also wanted to get a PhD. And so we were applying all over the place, trying to get into the same PhD program. And so we landed in, uh, at the university of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. Hmm. And, um, London is a very English, that's a very English part of Canada. I mean, Ontario is in general, but like London, especially. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had sort of soured on the Methodist church a bit and I, it's hard for me now to remember exactly what was motivating this, <laughs> but I, I think I was attracted to a more, um, like a liturgical service or to a liturgical um, tradition. And, um, you know, so right before that was, I, I did, while I say I had a really good experience with the Methodist church as I was growing up, I was becoming more and more dissatisfied with the church that I went to as a kid up until the time I left. And I, um, up until the time I left to go to school, um, because it became clear to me as I got older, how conservative that that particular congregation was mm-hmm. and that had started to push me away a bit. Um, I wasn't, I didn't feel very connected to that. Um, I'm from Northeast Indiana, which is a very conservative place, but my parents were always very liberal and very outspoken about that. And so I didn't feel like that, that place, the culture there really, um, I didn't feel like that was a place where I fit in and the church started to see more and more to me that way. And I, that may have driven part of why I didn't go in college now that I think about it. Um, and then, so, okay. So around the same time, it's important to point out that Kira and I were still really good friends and, um, she, so if we were out of undergrad, I guess she had, she was going through the discernment process. Um, and she was ordained during the time when I lived in Canada. But so I knew from her that, you know, I was hearing from her about her ordination process and her relationship with the Episcopal church. And, um, at the same time, I also, you know, she's my best friend. I I admired many things about her and I knew that we shared a lot of values. And so I was like, well, if she's like so into this that she wants to like devote her entire life to it, there might be something that it, Hmm you know, has for me. And so I started attending um, a church that was part of the um, Anglican Church of Canada. And when this is when I was living in London, and um, I honestly chose it for, well, I don't know, I chose it partially because it was in my neighborhood, and I could walk to it. And it was a beautiful, old, historical church building. Um, and a, a very old great place. reasons. So, well, I didn't really think that hard about like who went there, what was the, you know, what were the people like who worked there, anything. I just was like, oh, this is pretty and I can walk there. Um, 
So, I mean, now I'm like, oh, it's, everyone should go to church in their neighborhood, but I can't, <laughs> there isn't, there isn't one, but still. Um, anyway, so, and I, I did really like it there. It was, um, it was a really lovely place to go to church. They, they had wonderful, welcoming clergy and, and the people there were very warm and nice. And um, they ran a really big, um, like dinner program um, for low income families, like a big, like soup kitchen style program Mm -hmm. that, that groups from all over the city came and volunteered at, which when I think about it now, I just think about what a massive undertaking that is. (laughs) Um, at the time I didn't appreciate the work that surely must go into keeping that alive. Um, but they were always very supportive of me. And, um, so I went there for the, the five years that I lived in Canada and I saw that as a way also to sort of like cleanly jump ship from the Methodists. And like when I came back, just say like, well, I went to an Anglican church there. So I'm going to start going to an Episcopal church because I did feel like my mom and my grandmother would probably not understand why I was like suddenly not going to Methodist church. Um, there are, so there isn't really a Methodist church in Canada the way that there is in the United States also. So I also yeah. felt entitled to, <laughs> yeah. like, if I'm going to go to church, I could go to any, any church. <laughs> it wouldn't matter. Um, so so you came back from Canada. You came back from Canada back to Indiana or did you go somewhere else? No. So then we moved to my husband and I got married during the time that I was in Canada. Um, we, moved to Ohio and taught at the college of Worcester oh, right, okay. like near Akron kind of. Um, so Northeast Ohio and Worcester is a very small town of like maybe 22 or 25,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had one, one of everything, <laughs> one of every kind of church. Um, we, went to the Episcopal church there and had a wonderful experience. And that's where I was confirmed as an Episcopalian. Hmm. So, so obviously something was clicking with you Mm -hmm. because you could have moved there and said, well, I don't particularly like this church. I'm going to try, you know, there's one of everything. I'll just try some of the others. (laughs) I went to try the Methodist church that was like two blocks away and, and, quite a bit larger. Um, yeah, I think that, um, I, I, so I went on a Sunday, I just was like, okay, I'm, we've been here for a couple of weeks. We're getting settled in. I'm going to go try this Episcopal church. And I, um, really liked it right away. I saw a couple come in like, uh, a same sex couple. And I was like, well, that's a good sign because that's mm-hmm. a really important issue to me. I've always wanted to be in a place that was affirming. And, um, the minister there, the rector there was very, very good at, um, preaching. And I, I really liked the sermon. I felt like, um, I remember actually, I like wrote this down that very first sermon that I heard them give was like, there was this line that was like, you can't follow God and be apathetic. And I was like, wow, this place, this place might really work out. <laughs> and, I like um, that. I might steal that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went to the coffee hour after the church. And at that church coffee hour was like, I eventually would sign up to my husband and I would host it. You sign up to host. And that meant that you brewed all the coffee 
and you brought snacks and everybody would like get a plate with their like cheese and crackers on it or whatever and like sit down at a table and talk for 45 minutes so it was like I, I now realize how that's not always the case and um but I really valued that I, I did that the very first week and I met some people I ended up meeting like four or five people my own age which I was like 30 I think or about to turn 30 and I thought that was pretty remarkable for how small the church was how small the town was that it would have this um like contingency that or this contingent of young people mm-hmm. um that's great yeah and I mean they ended up being like my really close friends while I lived there and you know branching out to include some of their friends <laughs> but like that's where I found like my core social group was was at that church it's um, the way it should be. I'm so know, glad it that it's still around in some places. Yeah, it was lovely. I mean, that's kind of been true at St. Luke's. It just took longer. But yeah. I was, and um, isn't it hard to move to a new place? It is. I was terrified moving to this little town. I was like, we're not going to make any friends. It's going to be really socially isolating. And immediately, by going to church there, we made all these friends. Um, so that's good. That was a really good thing. And we had a really regular Wednesday night, like either Bible study or some kind of adult formation activity for most of the time that we lived there too. Um, so we were pretty regular attendees there for those so, few years. So how did you wind up going from Ohio to Fort Collins? Colorado. So my job at, at College of Worcester was not a tender track job. It was not permanent. Oh. And it was a lovely place to teach um, and to work. But um, I really wanted to get a permanent job because the, the academic job market is just so brutal. And, um, you know, if you only have a one-year contract, they can get rid of you if they want. And so I decided to, I just really wanted to pursue that tenure track line um, elsewhere. So, I got, I was back on the market and, and ended up getting this job in Colorado. Uh, so we moved out here. Four years ago. Uh, yeah, almost. And so now you're at St. Luke's. Mm-hmm. So you've kept on going with the Episcopalian thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they have two Episcopal churches. And just very randomly, our church in Ohio, like our minister there said like, Oh, it's, this is so such a random thing. I actually had this family who was very active here who moved to Fort Collins like eight years ago. And I'll put you in. Church. And maybe... Oh dear. Zoom, yeah. Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Zoom packed up for a minute. Are you back? Yeah. I'm there, but you're frozen. Okay. See I'm going to turn off video. Um, if I turn off video, we'll use less bandwidth and you don't need to see my mm-hmm. face. Um, so that okay. might be... Shall I stop your video too? I can do that from here. Yeah, I can do that. Okay. Okay. Is that okay now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Good. Okay. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll be using less. uh, (laughs) 
less bandwidth and the audio will. So, okay. Uh, so you were just saying that, that, uh, so a family that had moved out to Fort Collins a few years before. Yeah. yeah and so our minister put us in touch with them and they said, Oh yeah, you've got to go to St. Luke's. And so we came and visited St. Luke's and honestly, we were kind of like, okay, this is, this is fine. <laughs> we weren't like immediately in love. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I feel comfortable saying that because it's so different now from how it was four years ago, um, just in terms of personnel, if nothing else. But um, we heard the associate preach that week because the rector was on vacation or something. It was like the middle of the summer. And um, then, and we really liked him a lot. So we were like, okay, this is, this is going to work out. Okay. Um, but we didn't really get too involved there for a while. And um well, you got to settle in, right? Yeah, it takes time. Yeah. What's the favorite part of your job? What's my favorite part of my job? Hmm. There's a lot of really great things about my job. I mean, I'm in a really privileged position where I get to um, basically read and study whatever I want and organize my work around the things that I care about. I mean, there's obviously more to it than that, but at the end of the day, like the, one of the huge benefits is that it's very flexible and I can, you know, really focus on the things that I'm interested in and that I care about the most. So, you know, I pick my own research projects and things like that. And they're very, they're things that I find interesting and, you know, so I really love that. I also love teaching. I really love being in the classroom and interacting with students, which is part of what makes this whole online coronavirus period so strange. <laughs> um, yeah. So what does your day look like <laughs> these days? Are you just on Zoom? I don't know. Every day feels a little bit weird and nebulous. Um, I don't feel like I'm in a routine yet because I'm just like posting a lot of stuff online and the students kind of digest it at their own pace, which could be very good. Um, and I'm trying to stay in touch with them, but I basically have just been like working, you know, in my pajamas to post course content, post uh, videos, <laughs> little activities for them to do, assignments, things like that. And um, I hope that I can do like some Zoom office hours or some kind of virtual office hours, mm -hmm. um, but I'm not there yet. So this is our first week back and technically they don't actually start until tomorrow. The students don't start until tomorrow, but, um, are all the dorms closed there? No. So the dorms are open and the students are allowed to stay because they were afraid that if they closed the dorms, they would basically be making some students homeless. And, um, you know, we have some international students who basically can't travel. And so the, the thinking was that the best place, the, the best option is for them to be allowed to stay if they want. Hmm. So, but our building is closed so they can't come over to <laughs> use a practice room or go into their classrooms like they normally would. So what's conversely the, uh, the, <laughs> the bummer. What do you, what do you not like about your work? Um, what do I not like about my work? I mean, I think that academia has some practices in it that are really old and that are, structured on the premise that you have a spouse who is like taking care of most other aspects of your life. And 
Um, I mean, my husband and I don't have kids and we're both professors. So um, in some ways we have some advantages in terms of our time, the way that we can structure our time. Um, And that I think for people with families, it's different, obviously. Um, But I think that the idea is that it's like, the whole premise of getting tenure is that <laughs> to me, my, my sense is that, you know, to, to be promoted in academia, you have to do these things that so much of which is out of your control that um, it can be very dehumanizing. And I think there's this feeling that's like, well, why should we change it? I had to go through it. Now you have to go through it. And, um, again, it's not, it's just premised on this idea of this person who has someone at home, like cooking and cleaning and taking care of them so that they can just work constantly because the, the flexibility of the job is also sometimes a fault that it's like, well, there's nothing stopping you from working in the evening or in the weekends. Like, why don't you just work more? And, um, that's a dangerous thing. I don't know. I'd sometimes Kira and I talk about the similarities in our jobs <laughs> and sometimes this is kind of one, like, cause you know, she could do a lot of different things or make herself available to people at a lot of different hours of the day. <laughs> but, yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> that's not necessarily good. <laughs> no. So and what the very first church job that I had, I was the rector uh, or the priest in charge of uh little church in uh, Middlesbrough, Kentucky. And I lived, my wife and I lived in the rectory, which was right next to the church. I think there were 40 feet between one wall of the rectory and the back wall of the church. And the church, like the parish office was actually a room in our house. (laughs) If you came up to the front, (laughs) the front porch, there was one door that went into our living room and a separate door that went into the office. And then a, a door connecting the office through to our living room inside. Um, so that meant that it was, uh, it was really hard for me to turn off. Yeah. And I found myself like working 16, 17 days in a row, not right. full, like eight hour days, but right. But something. Um, yeah. Just because it was very easy to get a text from someone and then say, well, I'll just pop into the office and take care of that quickly. And then, Mm -hmm. next thing I know it's four hours later and I've just been writing and calling people all day. Mm -hmm. It's not good. Mm -hmm. And I try to have some of those kind of work-life boundaries, but ultimately it's hard. And the job I think really rewards people who do just like work all the time. So it's easy to have this perception that other people are constantly working and that like in order to keep my job, which is what tenure is like that I have to work all the time. Hmm. Uh, I know from my own like experiences that that's not actually productive for me, that I would do better to take time off. Um, but it's also, you know, you feel this pressure. It's hard sometimes to, to escape that. So do you feel as though your vocation, your, uh, the work that you do brings you closer to God or impacts your prayer life in some way? Um, in some ways, for sure, um, because I think that um, as I have continued, you know, studying things as part of my job, and as as I as I've continued um, with what you might call adult adult formation, even if it's not formally done at church, like just in my own reading, that um, you know, the way I see the 
world has continued to change and certain like i guess i'd say like social justice initiatives have become you know more important to me as i've um as as i've learned more about those things through my job and as i've also you know studied them in a more um you know spiritual context too and to me those things do start to overlap or go together and um i also think that you know being on the vestry has been a ton of work it has at times been more like my my part-time job i have on the side um (laughs) (laughs) partially because i joined the vestry right before this like huge transition period and you know the our vestry was the search committee for our current rector so it was like I was telling everyone how it was giving me like flashbacks from the academic job market because it was like, you know, um, let's, I mean, the, the Bishop's office did a, the first round of sort of looking through the applicants and they sent us a short list. So we didn't have to make our own short list, but that part of it is from that point, like so similar, like you get this list of names and their, their materials and you go all through them and, you we did skype interviews we did then what i kept calling the on-campus interview where we brought two candidates to the church and did in-person interviews and meetings and stuff and they had to they led um evening prayer on different days um to sort of demonstrate what their like style might be like if they were leading a worship service and gave them a chance to preach and and so on those those parts of it like the dinners the the meetings the interviews that's so much like what it is like to interview for an academic job and i just i i felt like it was just haunting (laughs) um so i also felt like in that moment there were experiences that i'd had in academia that i could that i could bring in that could be useful to say like well you know i'm noticing this or you know this person maybe they react maybe they said this thing because they're nervous or maybe they said this thing because they haven't done very many of these interviews or (laughs) i don't know there were just things about it that i thought i hope were beneficial for people Mm -hmm. to hear just that that experience from a slightly different context more than slightly different a different context (laughs) Uh, what advice do you have for someone who's interested in following your footsteps? Mostly when students ask me about going to graduate school for music, I tell them not to. So I don't know if they have a lot of good advice. All right. Um, well, <laughs> um, because I think that the uh, market is flooded with people who are very qualified. And so a lot of people get PhDs and don't get jobs in their fields. Um, oh. However, I would, I don't regret it. And which is maybe easy for me to say, cause I have a job, but like, um, if I think about that more in a broader context and certainly in a, in terms of religion, like I, um, I'm very grateful for ways I've been allowed to serve as like a lay leader. And I think that, um, part of that has to do with just continually showing up like being present as part of the church. And um, I've even had, I think because of my enthusiasm and presence, there have been a couple of times when people ask me, like, have you ever considered a, you know, a call to ordained ministry? And I'm like, I, the first time someone asked me that, I laughed out loud and people like turned and looked because we were at a restaurant. 
And um, I think like a big part of my experience has been realizing that like, that's really not necessary. I can see why if there's like a young person who's like enthusiastic and, and whatever, that maybe, maybe that sort of raises a flag for some people in a good way. That's like, Oh, maybe we should ask this person if they want to be involved in this even more. But um, I think it's really, I think lay leadership is really important. And the longer I'm involved at St. Luke's, the more I can see that, like, we, you know, can continue as a church, even if we have big changes, or, you know, even if we have to have a different minister than the one that we thought we were going to have for a long time, and that there's, like, a role for everyone as part of that process. It's it's not really just about making the minister, like, the star of the show, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and you know, that there have been, you know, things I've done to, to help myself along with that, I guess, just like reading a lot and, um, you know, continuing to sort of pursue adult formation has been important for me or like Christian education. I don't know how you want to, what, what we could call it as an adult, like through just my own reading and um and my own like desire to learn more about those things um but yeah i think i for me i feel like i was probably asked to be on the vestry because i just i'm there and my presence is is like part of the this i don't want this to sound egotistical like but but presence is being you know is part of what you give to the church as a member and that's probably why I was asked. Also, our previous rector actually asked my husband before they asked me to be on the vestry. And I kind of raised a big stink about it because he's not been confirmed for one. <laughs> and I said, he's, he said no anyway. He's like, I don't think so, but you should ask Abby. And the minister said, well, then, you know, I'm trying to make it so that we don't have like more women than men. I'm trying to keep the numbers really even in our, um, like overall balance on the vestry to which I said like, Oh, I'm sure there were many decades where there were only men. So it's okay if there's like one more woman than there is men. Um, yeah. But anyway, so I just like got on a soapbox about that basically for them, but that worked out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it's a great, uh, a great <laughs> desire to have, but yeah, I mean, in my parish right now, if I insisted on the, on gender balance in the vestry, I don't know what I would do. I'm, I think, uh, yeah, last year we had one man on the vestry, and I think this year we oh, don't. Wow. We don't have any men at all. Oh wow! Yeah. So there it is. Probably complicated reasons why that kind of thing happens. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess I think my my overall advice, which maybe you know, take it with a take it or leave it, take it with a grain of salt, is that. Um, being intellectually curious has been an important part of my life in both my, my um, job and in the work that I do at St. Luke's um, because I think it serves me in both. And so I, I highly recommend that to anybody, but maybe that's because I work in higher education. <laughs> uh, hey, do you have a favorite hymn? <laughs> do you have a favorite hymn? Ooh. Yeah. Wow, good question. This wasn't on the list that I said. No, that's okay. That's okay. 
I really like all of the kind of um, Celtic hymns, like Be Thou My Vision. Mm. Um, but I Very have singable sung, tunes. Of course. Um, I've sung, well, I, so there's a, I have, of course, more than one answer to this question. One is um, <laughs> St. Patrick's Breastplate, which I love because I first heard it and sang it at Kira's ordination. Oh, yeah. Um, I love... And I personally, I this might even be a cliche answer. I don't know. I love um, Amazing Grace because I've sung it now at like four or five different family members' funerals. Um, and it just, so it's acquired this really like special meaning for me singing it in those contexts. Hmm. It's a great, great hymn anyway. And now it has this like other layer of personal meaning for me. Yeah. All right, then the pop culture recommendation. <laughs> what do you, uh, while we're all quarantined at home yeah. waiting for this to pass, we're all binge watching stuff and trying to keep ourselves occupied. What do you recommend? A <laughs> uh, movie or a TV show or a book or uh, a musical instrument that we should all take up? Or <laughs> It's funny because I have had the desire to get out my old woodwind instruments and play them because I'm just like looking for other things to do. Um, <laughs> so I think um, I'll give you a book and a TV show. My original plan for Lenten reading for myself has kind of gone out the window. Um, but I was reading um, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved by Kate Bowler, whose podcast I love too. Um, but it's a little, um, for me, it's been a little heavy lately. So I haven't been picking it up as much. It's what with the news um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, <laughs> everything else going on. But it is a beautiful book and I, I'm sure I'll finish it soon. Um, and then the TV show I'm going to recommend is called Babylon Berlin. And huh. are you familiar with that show? Nope. It's on Netflix right now, but okay. it's only been on Netflix for a little bit. Um, it's a German show that focuses on the interwar period in Berlin. And hmm. um, it's a, it's just fascinating. It's a, it's almost like a noir. Like it's sort of about these detectives who are doing different work and, in Berlin and also, but also gives you some images of kind of more um, lower to middle-class domestic life <laughs> in that period. And it's just a really interesting kind of political, um, but also family drama. So I highly recommend that show. I'm, I'm still only in the first season, but it's great. Well, thank you. Yeah. We, um, uh, so we tend to have Netflix during the summer. Okay. When the when the English Premiership, the Premier League soccer season starts in the Whoa. fall, we switch over. We drop Netflix and we get Sling because Sling carries all of the NBC channels <laughs> that show um, the Premier League. Uh, because I'm a big soccer uh, okay. fan, so during uh, the fall and the winter and the spring, we subscribe to Sling so I can watch soccer. And then we <laughs> drop that when the soccer season ends and get Netflix again for a couple of months. And uh, soccer's uh, done for the year, just like all other sports seem to be around the world. So, um, yeah, we were actually talking about uh, getting Netflix in the next day or two. So We'll yeah, see. It's helping, it's helping Berlin, to have more options right now. <laughs> Berlin, Babylon? Uh, Babylon. Babylon, Berlin. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you.
Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> well, Abby Shoup, thank you for uh, talking to me. We've we've been trying to connect on Twitter for a while, and, yeah. and it's just been it's been a chaotic couple of weeks for both it of has. us. So, yeah, thanks for your patience. <laughs> well, thank you for yours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this this will be going out um, next a week from tomorrow. So that's uh, what is that April. Yeah, April 1st, April Fool's yeah. Day. Um so yeah, um are do you are you under uh shelter in place orders there in Colorado at this Technically, point? Technically Fort Collins is not. Um but okay. the Denver mayor and the Boulder mayor have each ordered shelter in place for their respective communities. So I think mm-hmm. most people here are kind of expecting it any day now and yeah i'm pretending that we have one already today was the first day here in the state of wisconsin that that we're um i think i think that the governor is calling it safer at home so it's oh. not like it's not a like a mandated shelter in place yeah. thing like they're doing in some places but um all unnecessary movement is strongly discouraged so it'll be interesting you know uh nine uh, eight eight days from now when this comes out if we will both listen to this episode and and think wow that seems like so long ago yeah <laughs> um, this this thing is changing fast so uh, yeah every day seems like oh wow yesterday yeah. was a long week so yeah long. i hope i hope we listen back to these episodes years from now and just think wow what a nutty time i'm glad yeah. we all, I'm glad <laughs> we all made it experience that was yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll keep you and St. Luke's in my prayers over these next few days. And uh, uh, this episode will go out, yeah, on April Fool's Day. So, <laughs> right. So thanks for talking to me. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. thank you for listening to my conversation with Abby. Again, if you'd like to get in touch with her, be sure to look in the show notes for links. You can reach me on Twitter at Apple Tree Pods. And on Facebook, we have a page at Apple Tree Podcasts. Feel free to like and subscribe and review and share this with anyone who might be interested. The intro music is called Cheerful by Bird, Bird, Bird. And the closing music that you're hearing now is St. Mary's Falls by Tom Ganaway. Again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Chris Arnold, and I'll talk to you next time on This Calling. Bye for now.